0: Ephesians 3, one verse this morning. Ephesians 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The TV series Unsolved Mysteries made its debut in 1988 and quickly become a staple of American history. 1980s culture. I use that word culture loosely. It became a series that focused on unsolved mysteries in the world, and it launched a whole new genre of television, the genre of the docudrama as they cast actors and actresses to reenact historic mysteries and to dramatize them with this mixture of like this faux documentary appearance, but actors walking through the great mysteries of mankind. They touched everything from the Loch Ness Monster to other sea monsters to Bigfoot to unsolved murders to the Shroud of Turin, even the aliens landing in Roswell, as if that's hard to explain. The show became wildly popular over the course of its decade or more on air. It was generally one of the most watched Television shows, over 1,300 mysteries were featured on the show. Half of the ones involving unsolved crimes were solved with tips from the show. So much that there became this whole kind of black market in the private detective world of, you know, if a loved one you knew was murdered or kidnapped or missing, you could hire PR firms to try to get the show on unsolved mysteries. As I mentioned, over half of such crimes were solved by the show. A hundred missing people were found. Seven wrongful convictions were exposed by the show, and the sea monsters off the coast of England turned out to be Norwals. Who knew? As I mentioned, it became a staple of 80s culture, right up alongside tight-rolled jeans and boys wearing neon. (laughs) This morning, as we turn our attention to Ephesians 3, verse 6, we encounter what really is the greatest mystery of mankind. And as the text uses the word mystery here at the beginning of verse 6, know that when the Bible uses the word mystery, it does so slightly differently than we often use it in our own culture. In our culture, the word mystery has this aura like unsolved mystery, something complex that if you just got a good enough detective, he could look into it and crack the case. The word mystery in the Bible, though, means something slightly different. It's a very common religious word in the Greek empire. There were all these different religious cults and sects that followed the different Roman and Greek gods, and they used the concept of mystery to mean a fundamental practice of their religion that you couldn't learn or understand until you were initiated into it. There are some cults today that still function in that way. If you want to know what this religion or that religion believes, you must first join them, and then you find out. Like, you have to install the app before you read the terms and conditions. The word mystery in the Bible functions in that sense, the Paul's writing this to the people in Ephesus. Their whole community was dotted with these different religious cults, the cult of Isis or Osiris or Dionysus, etc. There are so many of them, and they all had their own mysteries. And for you to find out what they believed, you must join them. And so Paul, writing to a city very familiar with this Greek and Roman concept, uses his own word, mystery, to them. He tells the Ephesians that we also have a mystery, We also have something, some truth given to us, only unlike the Roman cults that you couldn't know what the mystery is until you joined, in Christianity, Paul is advertising the mystery out front. He's letting everybody know this is the mystery of Christianity. However, in commonality or in similarity to those Greek and Roman cults, only those who are saved can rightly understand the mystery, It's not because we keep it secret, though. It's because those without faith can't understand it. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have a heart to believe. And so Paul can explain the mystery or proclaim the mystery, announce it, and yet it falls onto hearts of stone. People can't believe it until the Holy Spirit opens their hearts to the truth. And so the book of Ephesians is marked by this description of mystery, a truth that was hidden in the Old Testament and now is revealed in the New. That's another way commentators define the word mystery in the Bible, something hidden in the Old Testament, now revealed in the New Testament. The code has been cracked, so to speak. But I think Paul is rightly using it in a way that reminds the Ephesians of something that's true for those that know the truth. Something that had been hidden throughout the Old Testament but is now finally on great display. And this truth that the world can't understand, that the Old Testament saints only looked forward to but without comprehending the reality of it, is that those who have faith in Christ are joined together into one body. That's what he describes in verse 6. This is the mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs. And fellow heirs here, the word fellow here, describing their relationship to the Jews. The Gentiles and Jews are together in this. They are in fellowship. The wall between the Jew and Gentile has come down. As an outline this morning, I just will walk you through this little statement here that it's the greatest mystery, that through the gospel, Jews and Gentiles can be. And what they can be is united. They can be fellow heirs. They can be members of one body. They can be partakers of the same promise. The point is that Jews and Gentiles have a union together in one spiritual body. Now, this is rightly called a mystery because this is undiscovered in the Old Testament. This is something that begins in the New Testament. I titled this sermon Dispensationalism 101, like an introduction to dispensationalism. And what the word dispensationalism means, it's a, it's a theological word, but what it means is that is exactly this, that the church begins in the New Testament, that the church may have been alluded to, or perhaps foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but the church did not exist in the Old Testament, that the church came into being at the, at the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came from heaven, and tongues of fire spread, and those who had faith in Christ were sealed by the Holy Spirit and brought into one body. That's what dispensationalism means, that the church began in the New Testament. It's a mystery, because in the Old Testament, the Savior was promised to the world, wasn't he? The promise went to Adam and Eve, that it would be a descendant of Eve, a seed of Eve, a seed of the woman. Adam and Eve are the father and mother of all mankind. And the Savior would come as a human being to undo the curse of the devil, to undo the wages of sin in this world, to put back and to what had been made wrong by sin. That's what the promise of the Savior would be. And he would be that for the world. And through a period of time, the world went its own way. There was no governments. There were no laws. There was only rebellion and anarchy. And then God ushers in a new dispensation, a new era when he floods the earth and then separates the nations and separates the languages. And then ushers in yet another era, another dispensation when he calls Abraham out of the nations and gives the promise that was given to Adam and Eve to Abraham, that one of Abraham's descendants will be the seed. The Savior will come from him. And Abraham starts a new people, a new nation, the Jewish nation. The promise does not go to Abraham's oldest son, Ishmael, but to his second son, Isaac. The promise does not go from Isaac to what was probably legitimately his oldest son, but to his second son, Jacob. The promise doesn't go from Jacob to his oldest son, but to his fourth son, Judah, and so forth. And the promise becomes isolated in Israel. And then God separates Israel from the world. God gives Israel their law defines what they can eat and what they can wear and how they worship. They have their own language. They have their own culture. They have their own everything. They are walled off from the world. And the promise resides in Israel. Israel is clean. The Gentiles are unclean. The food they eat is kosher. The food of the world is, is unclean, non, not kosher. They are separated. And Gentiles have no access to to the promised gospel. Remember, when you say the gospel in the Old Testament, what that means is that the Savior, the one promised to Adam and Eve through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David, the King of Israel, will take away their sins. The Gentile nations have no access to that. They have no knowledge of it. There's no great commission in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's not being translated into Gentile languages with. Apostles going out and proclaiming it. The Gentiles are cut off. To use the language of Ephesians 2, they are aliens and strangers to the promise. They don't understand it. Jews make up about 0.2% of the world's population. 0.2%. And that's been fairly consistent throughout most of human history. You get a higher number if you you ask who has any Jewish blood in them, because of course we all run together back to Noah. Or you get a lower number if you say who has only Jewish blood in them, but that of course would eliminate probably everybody in the world, even the line of Christ had Gentiles in it. So 0.2% is probably a pretty accurate number. So I want to impress upon you how big the gulf was between the promised Savior and the nations of the world that 99.8% of human population would have no access to the Savior who is promised by Yahweh to take away people's sins and offer forgiveness, to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the lame, to open the eyes of the blind. Most of those who have ever lived are cut off from that promise. And this is by design. The walls that the Torah built were built by God. And so this becomes the question in the Old Testament. In what sense could Israel's promised Savior really be a light to the nations? In what sense could Yahweh be the God, the true God of all the worlds, if he's confined to Israel? How can there really be salvation outside of Israel? That's the question. And God answers that in the New Testament when Jesus comes to the earth, he comes as a Jew, of course, leads the perfect life, fulfills the law, but then he goes to the Gentiles and preaches the gospel to them. He's cut off by the Jewish people. He's betrayed, literally put on trial by the leaders of Israel, condemned to death, executed, Rises from the grave and sends his Jewish apostles to all the nations of the world to preach the gospel. And of course, they don't go. They huddle, they may move back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem, but eventually persecution comes, and then ultimately the Holy Spirit comes, seals their hearts, binds them together, and they go out into the world. That's the mystery. That's how it is cracked that God will start something new in the New Testament by building up his church. And that's the way the word mystery is used in the book of Ephesians. It begins in chapter 1, verse 9. It's the mystery of God's will to bring all things in heaven and earth under one head, even Christ. That's Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. The mystery is that all things in heaven and earth will have their significance and meaning under Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians five thirty-two, towards the end of the book, this is the mystery, Paul says, that it is Christ and the church That's the great mystery. This is what the Old Testament saints didn't understand. They couldn't perceive that God is going to bring the Gentiles in through starting something new. Remember, in the Old Testament, when somebody, a Gentile, wanted to come to faith in Yahweh, they would be very few and far between. They'd come to Israel, the Queen of Sheba, or Naaman, the Syrian, and get converted and go their own way. It wasn't exactly their own way. It wasn't exactly a paradigm of global hope or anything like that. And the New Testament says, no, the mystery is that Christ will have his church. He will have his church. And then the phrase is used all over Ephesians 3. We looked at it a few times last week. We'll look at it again next week. But this morning is probably the best definition of this mystery. In verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll look at these three one at a time. First, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow heirs. An heir is someone that receives the promise at someone else's death. We get the word inheritance from the same concept. When someone dies, you inherit their property. You are an heir. The promise was passed down as an inheritance. It was passed down from, as I said, Adam and Eve. Through Seth and then through the line all the way through Noah, who's, you know, his hand would give the people rest, Noah's dad thought. But instead, the, he flooded the whole earth. And the promise goes not to any of the nations made at Babel. None of those nations get the promise. Instead, it is given to Abraham. And it's embedded in the promise even to Abraham, that Abraham's offspring, that promised seed, would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. Nevertheless, the promise did not go to Ishmael. I mentioned that earlier. If you remember the story, Abraham was too old, he thought, to have a child. Sarah was too old to have a child. So Abraham slept with Hagar, and Hagar conceived. And you know, this could be the promised descendant. And God tells Abraham, no, not through Hagar. So Ishmael is cut off. Ishmael is literally sent away with tears and a farewell. It's a heartbreaking story. But Ishmael does not get the promise. Even though he's the oldest son, he is cut off and sent away. And now what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 3, verse 6, is that Gentiles do, in fact, get the promise. The Gentiles will, in fact, be grafted in. That they will receive the promise. They will inherit the promise given to Abraham. It will go to Ishmael. It will go to his descendants. It, not his physical descendants, but it will go to people who place their faith in the Savior. That's what Romans 4, verse 16 says, that God is the father of all who believe. You know, that's a verse that is so easy for your eyes to go over in Romans 4, verse 16. You know, if you underline the book of Romans, you almost have to say, I'm not going to underline the book of Romans. Otherwise, all of Romans will be underlined in your Bible, right? You never know where to start or stop. But if you try to use self-control, you might skip over Romans 4, verse 16, right? God is the father of all who believe. Of course, let's just keep going. It's not that profound. Catch the story in redemptive history that Ishmael was sent away. He would not be from Abraham. But now in the New Testament, that God will be the spiritual father for everyone who believes, those who descend from Ishmael and those who descend from Isaac, there will be no distinction between them if their faith is in the promised Savior given to Abraham. That is a grand scale of a statement right there. That God is the father of all who believe, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless if they're Jewish, do you understand how cataclysmic this would be to a Jewish reader? The promise from the, in the Jewish mind, it was to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and their people are set apart. They're the ones who were promised the Savior by God. And the New Testament comes along and says, while that was true in the Old Testament, it is no longer true. Now the promise goes to all who would believe, Jew and Gentile. Abraham will truly be a blessing to the nations. Israel will truly be a light to the nations. Yahweh will truly be a God of the nations. You have the Queen of Sheba in the Old Testament who declares to Solomon, happy are your men, happy are your servants. They continually stand before you. They hear your wisdom. Blessed is Yahweh your God, the Queen of Sheba says. He's delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because Yahweh loved Israel forever. He's made you king. I mean, that's kind of the Old Testament Gentile conversion right there, extolling Yahweh the God of Israel and then she goes her own way. Or Naban the leper who is ministered to by a Jewish slave girl, ministers to this Syrian military leader whom God struck with leprosy. She's ministered to a Jewish slave girl who sends him back to Israel to be baptized in the Jordan. And then he goes back to being a Syrian military leader. It's very different in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Gentiles are not grafted into Israel. For you to get saved, you don't have to go get baptized in the Jordan like Naaman did. You don't have to go join Israel. And when Jews get saved, they don't go join Gentiles. Instead, God starts something new. Jews are not grafted to Gentiles and Gentiles to Jews. Instead, God starts a new program, a new spiritual entity, the church that contains both Jews and Gentiles with no distinction. Jews and Gentiles both receive the promise They both become heirs. That's the mystery. This is something you could not see in the Old Testament because they didn't know that God was going to start something new when the Savior came. The Jews viewed the Savior coming as the way to end Roman occupation and usher in all the promises in the Old Testament and to be the Jewish Savior. They did not see or anticipate this idea that the Jews would in a sense be be broken off And that God would, through the sending of his Holy Spirit, launch a new spiritual entity. But of course, this has always been in the heart of God. I think of the parable of the wedding feast that Jesus tells. So there's the person throwing the wedding feast, and they send out the invitations. And the people who are invited don't come. Do you remember the story? They all have excuses, such good excuses. I can't come because I have taken my own wife. (laughs) I can't come because I got a new ox. I got to go work with the ox. Like, just RSVP, no, OK? I don't need a story about the ox. <laughs> but they, everybody has excuses. And this is obviously representing Israel. The Savior came. God sent the invitations to the Israelites to come and believe in the Savior. And they all came up with excuses, and they rejected the Savior. And so now the, wedding, the person putting on the wedding feast instead sends his servants, the highways and the byways, to invite you know the B-list. <laughs> and you guys come. And they come, and there's still room. And so he sends the servants out again and says, Go find the sick and the lame. Go on the highways and the byways. Look behind bushes and find the homeless. Invite everybody. Bring them all in. Pack the place out. And that's obviously a reference to the Gentiles. That's us. That we're invited into the wedding feast of God. We receive the promises. We get the wedding gift because we've been invited in. Not because we're Jewish, but because we listen to the invitation. We were invited. So in that analogy, by the way, if you're not Jewish, which is probably most of you, you are the sick. You are the lame. You're the homeless in the analogy. You're the one who was not on the A-list or the B-list, but you just got rounded up in the sweep. But praise God, you got to go anyway, right? Dieter and I were at a wedding a couple weeks ago. And we sat next to somebody who said that they just got invited the night before, that some people bailed because of COVID. and that they got a call from the the family and said, hey, some people canceled, so we've got room for you. And they came, and they were so excited to be there. And they did not feel insulted at all that they weren't on the A-list or the B-list but the call the night before. But they were there, and they were happy. (laughs) What a great illustration. That's us. Here we are. We're not here because we're Jewish. We're not here because we kept the Mosaic Law. We are here because we inherit the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the first way, the first part of this mystery is that Jews and Gentiles will both inherit the promises that we are fellow heirs. second part of this mystery is that we are one body. One body. The word body here, it's a corporal statement. Body, it means when you incorporate something, you're identifying it as a new body. You can't get a more personal analogy than that of a body. Even marriage is the closest Union, physical and spiritual and emotional on earth, and yet one body is still closer. That's why in Ephesians it says the husband and wife will become one flesh. They'll be joined together. It's just a, it's a, it's a metaphor about the reality that your body is you, not the person next to you. I can distinguish between you and your wife or your husband because you are you and she's her. You have different bodies What Paul's saying here is that in the church, it is Jew and Gentile are in one body. Again, Gentiles didn't join the Jewish body. Jews didn't join the Gentile body. God starts a new body, a new spiritual person. And those who place their faith in Christ are incorporated into that body. When you recognize Jesus as Lord, and you put your faith in him, you join not a nation, you don't join a movement, you don't join a political party, you don't join an institution, you don't join a nonprofit, you become part of a body. This is where the language of membership comes from. And other organizations and clubs steal the language of membership from this spiritual illustration. You know, you can become a member of Costco or a member of, you know, whatever, giant shoppers club, or whatever you become members of, members of a country club, or members of a church even, but Church has it first, and the analogy is from the human body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that you are members of the body. You have an arm. Your arms are members of your body. Your leg is a member of your body. It's part of you. And every believer is a member of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, that expresses itself in local church when you become a member of the local church. It's the local public manifestation of the universal reality that everyone who has faith in Christ is part of the same spiritual body. membership is why we call that in a local church, you're all members of this body because you are members of the invisible body of Christ that is global. You are joined not just to Emmanuel Bible Church when you're a member here, but you are joined to every Christian everywhere in the world. Christians speaking Russian right now, or Hebrew right now, or Arabic right now, you're part of the same spiritual body as them. That's what Paul means here. It's a new thing. Body demonstrates a unity in function. A body is doing one thing. Unity in design, it's designed for one purpose. For one person, unity and headship. A body has one head that's giving it directions and steering it where it will go. That's what it means. That's to be part of one body. When you come to faith in Christ, you are part of the body of Christ. A body has one blood. The blood of Jesus Christ is our body when we come to faith in Christ. A body has one life. The life of Jesus Christ becomes our life. We have one faith, Paul's going to say in Ephesians 4. And it's faith in Jesus Christ. We become part of his body. Listen, this is why you're a fellow heir with the Jews, because you become the body of the Jewish Savior. You don't come to faith, you come to faith through Christ, but you don't even come to faith to Christ. You come to faith in Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the inheritance of God because you are placed in the Son. It's his body we're talking about here. He uses this language earlier. Uh, Back in chapter 2, verse 16, jog your eyes up on your page there, Ephesians 2, verse 16, that Jesus might reconcile us both, meaning Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. That's what happens at the, the death of Christ, that he destroys the hostility between Jew and Gentile by being the forgiveness of sins in his body. And the word body here, I think Paul is using it intentionally to cover both sides of the b- both the meanings here that we are reconciled to God through one body meaning Jesus's body and to one body meaning the church through the cross kills the hostility between Jew and Gentile because we're now in the savior we're in the savior when you become a Christian it is more than joining a new family it's joining a new body you don't just get new brothers and sisters you get a new body Namely, the body of Christ. Now, I'm dwelling on this being a mystery because this is huge. Do you understand this is not in the Old Testament? And perhaps maybe if you were raised Presbyterian or covenantalist or something, this might be new teaching for you here. But do you understand that in the Old Testament, Israel is never called a spiritual body? That's not something used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. They're not a body in the Old Testament. They're a nation, they have the word of God. They have an ethnic identity. They have a linguistic identity. They have an identity that is in outward sense religious through circumcision and external obedience to the Torah. That gives them a nationalistic identity. But they are never called a spiritual body because they do not possess the spirit of God in them. When people got saved in the Old Testament, certainly that required regeneration, certainly that required the Holy Spirit to save people. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not seal people did not dwell with them. That's what it means to be one body. Your body has one spirit, one soul. When you come to faith in Christ, now in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit doesn't simply regenerate you, but he seals you, and he abides in you, and he lives in you, in your heart, in your spirit or soul, whatever term you want to use, convicting your mind of sin, applying the word of God to your heart, and he resides in you for the rest of your life. And he resides in every person who has placed their faith in Christ. And so that every person then who has faith in the Savior is legitimately part of the Savior's body because they all possess the Savior's spirit. That's what it means to be one body. This is a New Testament reality. There's nothing even remotely like that in the Old Testament. To use Paul's language in Romans 9, not all who are Israel are Israel in the Old Testament. Not everyone circumcised in the flesh is circumcised in the heart. Israel had their own priesthood. They had their own temples. Jews meet together in a synagogue. This is nothing at all like what we have. We don't go to the synagogue. We go to church. And it's not just a different name for the building. It's fundamentally different design, different purpose, we don't have our own priesthood. We have elders and deacons. We don't have circumcision on the eighth day. We have baptism at faith in Christ. It's, there's parallels, of course, because one, I think, can foreshadow and point to the other. But it is just fundamentally, and it was a mystery. That's why he uses the word mystery. All this stuff was a mystery in the Old Testament. Jonah had the closest encounter with it, and he ran for the hills. <laughs> But this is the New Testament reality, that Jews and Gentiles will share one body together. And I want to make this so clear. When I say this, it's not Gentiles that have joined the Jewish body. It's not Jews that have joined the Gentile body. It's God starting something new in Acts chapter two by sending his Holy Spirit to the world. And all those who place their faith in the Savior become part of that new thing. They become part of that new thing. Well, this leads to the third way we see this mystery. We see the mystery through Jews and Gentiles being fellow heirs. We see this mystery through Jews and Gentiles being part of one body. And we see this mystery between Jews and Gentiles being the recipients of the Messiah. And that's what Paul means in verse 6 that is now, he says they become partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, the promise is singular here. Partakers is the word that Paul has used before to describe receiving the Holy Spirit. He uses it that way in Hebrews 6. Uh, He alludes to it that way in Ephesians 1, that you become the promised Holy Spirit seals you, or in Hebrews 6, you partake the spiritual blessings. Here he uses that phrase, I think, to indicate the Holy Spirit. The Jews and Gentiles will both become partakers, not tasters, but partakers of the promise, and the promise here is the Holy Spirit, which is in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jews and Gentiles together receive this. I mentioned the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit seals, uh, regenerates people in the Old Testament, did not seal them. The Holy Spirit rested upon people in the Old Testament for specific functions, like a judge to deliver Israel, or a king. But it was not some kind of eternal promise. This is why David can legitimately pray for the Lord to not take this Holy Spirit from him. He didn't want to be cast off like his Holy Spirit was taken from Saul or from others. This is something new in the New Testament. When the Holy Spirit comes, you become a partaker in him. He dwells in you and places you into a body of Christ. And so you almost have to zoom out here. Understand that if you jog your eyes up to Ephesians 2, verse 12, you used to be, Gentiles used to be separated from the Savior, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That was the situation that Gentiles found themselves in before the church. Separated from the promises, as I mentioned, 99.8% of the world's not able to read the promise given to Abraham. Not able to hear it. Intentionally built on the other side of the wall. with no, Paul's language here is no hope. Strangers to the hope. Strangers to the covenants of promise. It's not like things were better off inside the wall, though, either. The Jews who had the covenants, who had the promise, for the most part, didn't believe them. That doesn't mean the word of God failed. Of course not. It just is a testimony to how sinful the human heart is. And so this is your story. Whether or not you are a Gentile or whether or not you're a Jew, whether or not you're born in Tel Aviv and grew up speaking Hebrew, or born in New York City and grew up going to Jewish school, or born in some far-flung, backwater, nowhere, out of the way place like Alexandria, Virginia. No matter which category you fall in, you're born into this world in sin with no way to get out of it. If you're born in a Jewish family, it doesn't matter how fastidious your Judaism. You grow up learning the Torah and reading Hebrew. And, but you can't keep the law of Moses. You can't. You try and you fail. You try to keep it and you break it. And it becomes a way of testifying about your sinfulness. Or you grow up in a Gentile family and you learn the difference between right and wrong, and God has pressed natural law into your heart and to your conscience, and your conscience tells you not to lie, and your conscience tells you not to lust, and not to hate, and not to be greedy, and not to covet. But you do all of those things. And so your conscience condemns you for being a liar, for being greedy and covetous and. Both persons, the Jew and the Gentile, are both condemned by the law that God gave them. They're both strangers in that sense to the promise. And you cannot earn forgiveness then by keeping the law. Because the more you try to keep the law, the more, of course, you break the law. The more you break the law, the more you're condemned by it. So the worse off you get. In some sense, it's almost better to just claim ignorance to the whole thing and be like, I don't know the word of God, so I can live however I want. Now, that's not going to get you to heaven either. But at least it's not going to keep heaping guilt upon your head. That's the way people are in this world. Then 2,000 years ago, Jesus is born to this world. God sends his son, who's born to a Jewish family from a long line of Jews. That's the point of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. He's as Jewish as Jews can get with the odd Gentile mixed in, because that's very Jewish, actually. (laughs) And he grows up, and he keeps the law. Not only does he grow up keeping the law perfectly, unlike any Jew that ever lived, he grows up, in a sense, becoming the true Israel. He is forced to flee to Egypt like Israel was for his own safety and protection. The angels bring him back through the wilderness wanderings where he is tempted by the devil. Through the Jordan River, every Jew understands that when you became part of Israel, the Jewish people were crossed Crossed the Jordan River, even when a Gentile wants to convert to Judaism, they have to be washed, demonstrating their union with the Jordan River crossing. Jesus himself went and was baptized in the Jordan River. He's as Jewish as Jewish can be to the point that you can legitimately say he becomes true Israel. He makes his own manna to feed people. And he entirely keeps the law of Moses. He never violates a single part of it. He keeps it perfectly. And then he begins preaching the gospel. There's forgiveness of sins through him, the sinless son of God. And the Jews, for the most part, completely reject his preaching. And so what does he do? He leaves Israel and he goes to preach in Gentile places. He goes through Lebanon and to Syria and through the Decapolis and to Jordan. And he preaches in these Gentile places. And you remember, of course, one of the first Gentile cities he went to, he had the woman who came to him and begged for forgiveness, and he says, I thought I was only here for the Jews. I think meaning it ironically. And she says, well, even the dogs can eat the scraps on the table when the children are done eating. (laughs) In other words, Jesus has been rejected by the Jews. That's why he's out in the Gentile world. And Jesus, remember what he tells her? I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. And her sins are forgiven. And so he preaches the gospel to both the Jew and Gentile, that he has kept the law, the law written on the human mind and conscience and heart, he completely kept. The law written by Moses, he completely kept, never sinning. And he comes to the end of his life, and he's betrayed by his own people, handed over to Gentiles. He's put on some mock trial by literally the leaders of Judaism who sentenced him to death handed over to literally the highest Gentile ruler in the area who carries out his execution. And of course, that's not what ultimately killed him. As he's nailed to the cross after leading a completely sinless life, God is transferring him God's own wrath because of all of the sins that everyone who would ever believe in him have committed. So our sins become given to Jesus Christ, which makes sense when you understand the end of the story, that through faith we're in his body, it makes sense that our sins would become his sins. And so God pours out his judgment and his wrath on Jesus while Jesus is on the cross for our sins. And that's what kills him. Of course, Jesus ultimately gives up his own spirit. When the Roman guards come to investigate, they're surprised he died so quickly. In his last moments on Earth, the Jew who's being crucified next to him, places his faith in him and is told he'll have his sins forgiven. And the Gentile centurion places his faith in him and declares, him to be a righteous man. And then Jesus descends into the grave, proclaiming his soul, descends to Sheol, proclaiming victory over the death itself. And then his body rises from the grave three days later, not in defeat not in bloodied agony, but in blazing white glory. His resurrection body comes out of the grave, proclaiming victory over death itself. And he gathers his disciples together, and he tells them to go into all the world preaching the gospel. And remember, they don't. They huddle up in Jerusalem, lock themselves in a room. Then the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them and begins the church. Then persecution comes and scatters them. And the gospel breaks the banks of Jerusalem, breaks the banks of Judea, overflows the edge of Samaria, and goes into all the nations of the world. And then Jesus, of course, is ascended into heaven where he's promised to return to earth again. That's the mystery, that Jews and Gentiles in this time now are in this together through faith in Christ. That doesn't mean God is done with Israel forever. Of course not. His promises to Israel still stand. Jesus will physically return in his own body, return to earth and establish his kingdom and reign over the nations of the world from Jerusalem. That will happen in the future. But until then, in this era, in this dispensation, in this moment in redemptive history, God is working through his church. Those people who've placed their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their behalf, who have received his spirit, because of faith, you will become united to the body of Christ. We've received the promise that it says at the end of verse 6 that comes through the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died for sinners and resurrected from the grave. We inherit these promises. The same promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same promises Ishmael was cut off from. We inherit those promises, not by being descended to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but by believing in the Savior given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't receive these promises through Christ. We receive these promises because we are in Christ. We're united to him through the possession of his spirit, All these promises are his. The inheritance is his. He's the true son of God. The promises are his. The Holy Spirit is his. The body is his. And we are placed in him through our faith. And so they become ours. The question to ask yourself at the end of this is, have you believed that message? Or are you still a stranger and alien to the promise? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you believed that he has died for your sins? Have you given your life to him? That's what it means to be part of his body. Going to church does not make you part of his body. Any more than hanging out in your garage makes you a car. Believing the Bible is true doesn't make you part of his body. The demons understand that but placing your faith in him, recognizing that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. Giving him your life, placing your faith in him, that's what makes you part of his body. And apart from faith in Christ, there is no salvation. There is no other way to be saved. The promises were passed down through the Millennia, They were passed down finding their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Nobody else fulfills those promises. The promise of the Savior is fulfilled nowhere else except in Jesus. So there is no hope for any other way of salvation except by placing your faith in Christ. But once you place your faith in Christ, you are in Him. And those promises become yours because they are His. And you are joined to Him by faith. This is why it's so fitting to end our our time this morning at the Lord's table. Because when you take the bread, you're putting it in your body. You're joining it. It can't get more joined to you than going inside of you and you eat it. (laughs) What a picture of our union with Christ. So Jesus can legitimately say, unless you place your faith in him, unless you eat his flesh, as the language uses, you have no part or portion in him. I pray that that would be your testimony, that today, if you have never done so before, that today you would place your faith in Jesus Christ. And you would see yourself go from stranger and alien to the promises of God to fellow partaker and participant with the very promise that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would become yours through faith in Christ. Lord, we're thankful for your promises that reach us through the ages. This is the great mystery unseen in the Old Testament, but now revealed fully to us who believe that there's one body, Jew and Gentile. Lord, I pray for this congregation today, this part of your body that is gathered together today. Pray that everyone here would have their faith in you, that we would appreciate anew, a fresh, with fresh eyes, the joy it is to be recipients of this mystery. The Jews and Gentiles will be united through faith because we're in you. Lord, our hope is in you. Our faith is in you. We receive promises through you. Our life is wrapped up in you. You bore the penalty for our sin. Your resurrection is the seed of hope in our heart for our resurrection. We're thankful for this mystery and that you've revealed it to us. We give you thanks in the name of Christ. Amen. And now for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us today. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to meet you personally at Emmanuel Bible Church. Our service times and other church information is on our website at ibc.church. If you want information about the Master's Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been an encouragement to you and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. May the Lord bless you.